service, especially those that are viewing our service online. Thank you for being a part of it. Uh, we have several announcements before Brother Ken comes to uh, have our uh, begin our class. Uh, those that uh, have recently had surgery, Martha Caldwell's in the Magnolia Hospital following surgery, surgery yesterday. Jerry Ligon had knee surgery today and he's already at home and doing fine. Harold Eaton will be having surgery on, surgery on Friday in Tupelo. We need to remember all of these in our prayers. The food pantry item for this week is cooking oil. Uh, there will be a short but very important meeting of the Freed Hardman Associates Thursday night, 7 o'clock in the annex. There will also be a meeting of the elders, deacons, and ministers on Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock in the annex. If you plan to participate in Lads to Leaders, the forms are in the foyer. Please pick those up and fill those out as soon as possible. Please remember to pick up one of the bulletins when you leave the auditorium tonight. I have a note that I'd like to read. This is addressed to the Boonville Church of Christ. It says, My name is Jonathan Hutchins. I know that all of you know me. I'm writing to ask that you pray for me and ask God to forgive me of the many things that I've done. Uh, we were able to help Jonathan when he was uh, being admitted to a rehab, uh, so we need to remember him. Uh, <clears throat> he says, I've done, uh, I've done a lot of things and I'm amazed that people care about me and believe in me. I don't want to think that I've uh, seen what I've seen and, and without the belief that the church has me in its prayers. I thank you. Thank you all uh, with all of my heart and I love you all. And to my mother and sister and my children and my brother, thank you for not giving up on me. I love you guys very much. Jonathan Hutchins. Brother Ken will be taking his name before the congregation in prayer in just a few minutes as he begins this class. Brother Ken. Good evening, everybody. It's great to see you. I hope you've had a wonderful week so far. And I've really been looking forward to this time to be with you. Let's go ahead and have our prayer. And then we'll sing a song together and then begin our study of God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have as your children be able to come into your presence 
We're thankful, Lord, that we're welcome there and that you've made every effort to be with us. And Father, I I just am so overcome thinking about that privilege. And I pray none of us will ever take that for granted. I'm, I'm thankful for what Jonathan Hutchins wrote. And I especially think about the last words that he wrote, that he was thankful that his, his family had not given up on him. And Lord, I, I can't help but also think about how grateful we are that you haven't given up on us. So, Lord, I, I pray for Jonathan that he's going to have success in the process of his rehab, that he's going to be able to get control of his life again, and that all the sacrifices that his family has made will have been worth it. I pray for us as a church, too. I pray that we're going to be the kind of serving church that not only has reached out to help Jonathan, but will be able to help so many others as well. And not just in this particular category of circumstances, but that we can help solve a lot of issues with people. People who've been displaced, not just because of addictions, but because of struggles they have in their families or loss of jobs or the greatest peril of all, that is spiritual issues. Lord, please empower us and help us especially our leadership, to identify those people who are best able to provide the help. And then the rest of us can rally around them and be a support. We're all a part of a great work here. And we thank you, Lord, that you're opening doors for us. And I just hope all of us feel a part of that that you'll help us to feel a part of that and that you'll just wake up something inside every single one of us so that together we can, we can do things through your power and your assistance that we never thought possible and that you will be glorified here in ways that, again, we never thought possible. Thank you, Lord, for the recovery of so many who have been sick And we see their faces in our audience tonight. We also pray for those that Tommy mentioned who are sick right now or facing surgery or have had surgery. And Lord, we're praying for their recovery because we miss them and they're vital to our work here. So Lord, help us be a a church that serves. Help us to function in the very best way we're capable of as you will make possible. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's sing number 429. Four hundred and twenty-nine. We are in a study of what it is really to be a servant. We want to develop a servant mentality. Last week I introduced the idea and stressed not just that we're servants, but the fullest extent of that idea is slavery. We are bond servants of Jesus Christ. Well, since that's true, and we're wanting to do and be everything the Lord wants us to do and be, then we're going to have to be more like Him so that we can be the servant that He is and as much as is possible with us to embody Jesus, to be His light in this world. So that's, that's a lot of what this song is about. That ought to be a good segue for our lesson tonight. 429. Oh, to be like Jesus coming in his sweetness, right? That sounds easy. But he's coming in his fullness too. And that means there's no limitation there. So as I expect my relationship with Jesus to be sweet, 
there are also expectations that Jesus has of every single one of us. Tonight I want to talk with you about us as a church, being a church that serves. Now, a church that serves actually begins with biblical truth. Because the fact is, you can't walk right if you don't know right. If you don't have it in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, then you are directionless. We want God's Word to fill us and to make possible our right steps. Jeremiah talked about that. Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10, 23. So, I'm thinking about being a servant in this series. And I, I want to be like Jesus, because Jesus was the ultimate servant. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, right there in that short little text is the answer to his service. Lord, what kind of service did you do? Oh, well, I did a lot of things, but the one thing that mattered was the service that I did for your soul. I died for you. I gave my life a ransom for you. I paid your debt. Now, that's how far Jesus is willing to go for us, in service of us, the master serving the slave, the teacher serving the student. He said, I've been in that kind of relationship with you, but now I'm calling you my friends. Now, Jesus, as my friend, my brother, as a result of my relationship with God, being adopted into the family of God, I now have to think in terms of that service and I actually have to ramp it up a little bit because of something that Jesus said. Jesus said, as he was agonizing over the events that were to come, not my will, but your will. Now right there is the stepping up of service. Because my service, in order to be as complete as Jesus' service was, is going to have to be so other-minded, that is, I think of others to the degree that Jesus did, that I am setting myself up as a slave of God. God, whatever it is that you would have me do, that is my mentality. Here's the thing. I, I don't expect everybody to walk out of here with that mentality tonight. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to go ahead and set the stage for it. Okay? And the reason why is because being that kind of servant, the kind of servant that says, not my will, but your will. Now, let me me say this. I hear that in prayers a lot. They'll ask for something and then add that into it. But I don't want us just using it as a flippant, common phrase. I want us to appreciate what that really entails. When I say not my will, I'm meaning exactly that. My will is out of it. 
And so I'm going to submit myself to the will of God. Now understand that the will of God is challenging. And it will oftentimes go against what is my natural inclination of things. And we'll be talking about some of that tonight. I want us as the Boonville Church of Christ, located here, I would wish this for everybody, but I especially want it for us because we're a unit, we're a body right here. I want us to appreciate what it is to serve and then be the church that serves. But as I've already kind of foreshadowed it, I want us to appreciate the fact that we're going to need to do two things. We're going to have to be people who are others-minded, and then we'll also talk about being others-focused. Let's start with being others-minded to begin with. Humility. Humility is the idea that I'm bringing myself down. In the church, it is the idea of bringing myself down or to the level of cooperation with everybody else. I'm responsible to be a part of the work of a body. And so, I guess my first thought is that the sense of that humility is just the foundation work of my service. So all of us are going to humble ourselves, is the idea, in order that we might serve together as one body. In Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts different according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Paul says, let me think about the grace of God in the sense of God's gift to us. Now you say, well, that's a big subject. Yeah, but he gets more specific. What about God's work with me as I'm trying to work with the rest of the body? He says, let's make an assessment. You know how your physical body has all those many parts about it? And yet all those parts are working together for the good of the body? In fact, as you walk around, you're probably not even thinking about all of your parts. You might think, oh, my, my knee's a little sore today and I need to take care of that. But probably not thinking about your fingers while you're walking. Or your ear, unless it starts itching. Or your hair follicles, if you have any left. <laughs> but you're just kind of going about because your body is doing its thing. I'm not trying to think every moment, is my heart beating? Am I taking enough breaths? Are my lungs functioning? I don't think about that. Everything just works. Much of it works all on its own. He said, your physical body made up of all those parts does its thing, so too the body of Jesus Christ. We're all parts of one body functioning. And listen, when it is functioning in its optimum 
condition. That that means that all of the parts, i.e. each individual person who's a part of this church, when every part is functioning as it ought to, there isn't anything necessarily that stands out. We're just kind of in unison doing our thing to the glory of God. That is a sense of humility that is foundational to service. But let's take that thing a step further. Okay, so if I have that humility, then the likelihood is if it, if it really exists to the extent that we function as we're supposed to function, then that humility is also going to contribute to a sense of unity in the body. All of us recognizing our oneness and just kind of relishing that fact and just being at peace among one another. There's a great psalm. It's just a few verses, actually three verses. Psalm 133. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, Aaron's beard that went down to the hem of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now here is the sense of humility contributing to unity or oneness. Remember, we said now, humility is, is just bringing it down to where we're all kind of on an even keel. We're all doing our different thing, but we're all one. We're all recognized as equal members of the body. So everything's kind of functioning right. He says it's very similar to a couple of illustrations. One would be that of the high priest. You know, when that oil was originally poured on the head of Aaron, it didn't hit his body all at once, but it did represent a sense of unity and oneness because it started at the head, the top, and it unified the entire body in the presence of everyone who witnessed it, right down to the feet. Yeah, there's the head and there's the foot, and you say, well, the head's higher than the... Wait, stop. That oil unified the whole thing. It became one representation, the wholeness of Israel. He said the same kind of thing naturally occurs and people in that region could step outside and see it if they wanted to. Right there is Mount Hermon, the very highest peak in the entire region. It has snow and ice on the top of it. And as that ice begins to melt, the waters just kind of trickle and one little drop of water is added to another little drop of water. And before you know it, now you've got a spoonful of water. That becomes a bucket of water. Eventually that makes its way to a stream. That stream gets into a creek of some kind. It gets to the river and ultimately it flows to the sea. It becomes an amazing torrent of water. But it didn't start that way. Each little individual part contributing to the whole and nourishing the entire valley beneath. The same is true about the beauty that exists when there is humility, when there is unity expressed through that humility, when all of us aspire not for greatness, but we aspire for oneness in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, I wanted to bring a text in here. It's from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, 
we're just going to look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You heard that word right there a lot in this text, didn't you? Other, other. Think about the other. Be mindful of the other. That's humility. I'm in the mix of it, but I am mindful of everybody else who is a part of the body that I'm a part of. We're working together, so I find you to be essential. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Here's the thing about selfish ambition and conceit. Those things crave for themselves glory and honor. Wait a minute, stop. I thought that in the church we are here bringing glory and honor to God. (laughs) Okay, then you get it. (laughs) He says, don't do that. Don't you be the person who has selfish ambition and conceit are conceited, think more of myself than I think of others, because what you are actually craving is the thing that we've come here to give to God. And what does that make you? If that is my aspiration, I've actually become a competitor with God, right? I mean, isn't that the natural conclusion? So no, don't be those things, he says. I should not, as a servant within the church, crave glory and honor. I should actually be craving the opportunity, as Jesus always did, to give. Now, we're looking here at a passage from the book of Philippians. You probably know from your study of the book of Acts or some other study maybe that Philippi was a part of that Macedonian call. It's one of the Macedonian churches. Well, there's an interesting couple of verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians. He's come to gather up their collection. They've been collecting for a whole year. He used the Macedonian churches as an example of a humble sort of Christian service. In verses 3 and 5 in particular, he says, you know, now, these people, they didn't just give, but they gave beyond what they were able. Oh, they were able to give, but they actually gave beyond what they were able to give. And question, why did they do that? Verse 5 says, well... They did that because they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Wait, the will of God. Isn't that where we started? I want to be a church that serves the Lord. How do I do that? Well, I have to begin with biblical truth. He says they were giving according to the will of God. God wanted them to do this. What did they have to do? Well, they could have said, "Ah, we're not able. We're kind of looking at our finances. We're looking at our source of income. We can't do it. Paul says that's not what they did. They committed themselves to do what they believed the Lord's will was. And when they did that, not only were they able to give, but they were able to give beyond what they thought they would be able to give. They were able to do that first because they gave themselves to the Lord. Lord, I'm your servant. 
I'll do whatever you say. Your will, not my will. And then when I committed myself that way and understood that God's will was that we should do this commitment that we made some time ago, then the second part was easy. Once we had committed ourselves to the Lord, well, we could commit ourselves to any work. Paul says, I'm thankful it was, you know, to us because that is going to bless and benefit so many people. Here's the thing about that, that as a servant who is others-minded, thinking about others, have my mind on others, as a component of the part that I'm playing connected with you, so I have to think about you, as I'm others-minded as a servant, then there is the sense that I am pushing down in order to create the humility that's necessary for me to be on even keel with everybody else, push down my aspiration. But at the same time, I'm lifting something up. Well, that's Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Not just concerned about my part. Do I have a part? Not read this way. Yeah, of course I do. I'm responsible for my part, but I'm not only concerned about my part. I'm concerned about yours too because ours, our works in the Lord are supposed to do this. There isn't, well, look what I did. Oh, you think you did something? Look over here. That's selfish ambition and conceit. Don't do that, he said. What we're looking to do is this. And the only way we can do that is being others-minded. Now, the second thing that I wanted to talk with you about is the next step of that. If I'm others-minded, means I'm thinking about you and connected with you. If I'm others-focused, that's the difference between a shotgun and a rifle. Okay, with a shotgun... You don't really have to aim that well. Just kind of get it in the general direction. And likely is one of those little pieces of shots going to hit something. But with a rifle, oh, you got to zero that thing in because that hits with pinpoint accuracy. <laughs> well, in the hands of some people, in the hands of some people it does. Okay, so I'm thinking laser focus. I am intent on something. Yeah, there is a work that's going on, but listen, when it comes to everybody involved, I, I've got to focus intently on some things. Here's where I want to bring in a subject that, especially when we're thinking about our lead-in of humility and oneness and unity in the body, this is something that, can be a real problem. It was a real problem in the first century. I'm sure it remains a problem today, and that is the idea of partiality. You can, and I encourage you to, when you get a chance, read through James chapter 2. We're not going to go through that whole text. I want to pinpoint some instances in there that will teach us some lessons about partiality. But when it comes to partiality... Or favoritism is another word that we could use. The Bible condemns that. And that would be, either as is in the text, the difference that we sometimes see between the rich and the poor, 
It could be also an application, the difference we see between people who have varying educational levels, be the difference we see between social standing, maybe even our perception of their spiritual condition. Whatever it is that causes us to see differences in people can become a real problem to unity and oneness and serving together. Now, God makes relationships so simple. Did you realize that? God makes the idea of relationships so simple. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40 is the story. This lawyer comes to Jesus. He wants to know kind of the debate of the day. What's the great commandment? (laughs) Jesus has the answer for him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now notice that little nuance. The guy wants to know what's the great commandment. Jesus says this is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Don't miss that. What's the great commandment? Well, the great commandment has two parts, Jesus says. The first part of that great commandment is love God with all that you've got. The second part of that great commandment is love your neighbor with the same intensity that you're loving God. It's like it. Did you hear that? Well, of course, the natural question would be, who's my neighbor? And you know, Luke chapter 10 talks about the neighbor situation. And Jesus gives a great parable. And again, you can read that on your own. I'll not go into all the details of that, but I'll give you the essentials. And that is, you've got this Jew who is out on the road and he is overtaken by some thieves and he's beaten up and left for dead in the ditch. He has passed by two Jewish religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, his own people, religious leaders. If anybody knew to take care of their own people, that's who would be it. But they were such huge hypocrites. Along comes what Jesus will later describe as being the neighbor. Oops, a Samaritan. Now, if you know how Jews relate to Samaritans, you know that's, that's a no-go. No-go. If this, guy were, if this guy who's in the ditch were aware of it, he probably would have refused the help of the Samaritan. However, the Samaritan, most likely knowing that that would be true, thought, no, this is more important than how I might feel about him. And he gathers him up and he takes him and he cares for him. And not only does he care for him, initially he sees to his later care. Jesus asks, who's the neighbor here? And it wasn't the two religious leaders. It's the Samaritan. Now to any Jew who read that, that is a like a monumental revelation. 
And by extension, here's what we've pretty well come to believe, and I think it's the implication of the text. Question, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Well, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor, you're my neighbor, and look down the street, they're all my neighbors. Not just, though, the ones who drive Buicks and make a good living. It's also that guy over there who's covered up in cardboard and has got a beard he ain't shaved in a while, and you can't even get near him because he stinks so bad. Who's my neighbor? Anybody and everybody. Okay, so, James chapter 2. That guy. (laughs) That guy has showed up for worship. Along with a guy who's rich. Now, you, you heard me say, you could have applied a lot of different things. It isn't just the poor and the rich. It could be the educated, the uneducated. It could be the social elite and the one who's the social outcast. It could be any kind of situation that divides people, that causes us to make a determination about a person. We size them up. But here's the problem. We size them up on the basis of externals, of things that we believe we can control. I know people like that one right there. And so, he must be like them. That doesn't necessarily follow, understand me, but that's what we do. What is the problem with that? Well, James goes through a series of discussions to point out just how bad that is in relation to our service to other people because it gets in the way of our doing what God has called us to do. Oh, Lord, your will, not my will. Well, my will is, and then fill in the blank. Because sometimes we'll say, yeah, I'll take that, but I won't take that. That's what I meant by when I said in the beginning, being the kind of servant that Jesus wants us to be may require more than just one setting. We may not come out of this building completely changed, But we really need to understand what we're dealing with here. So in this situation, James, by inspiration, points out some problems with partiality, with favoritism. One problem with it is that it makes you a judge. Verse 4. Now, you probably know already from your study of the Scriptures that being a judge is a bad idea. Not to mention maybe the most famous judge passage that there is, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, however you treat that person, that's how you're going to be treated. Did you have righteous judgment on that? Well, I don't know if it was righteous or not, because I really don't know him. Or her, I just kind of jumped to some conclusions, so I treat them this way. Well, okay, however it is that the discrepancy exists between how they really are and how you've treated them is how it's going to be measured back to you. Whoa, wait a minute. I didn't know. I didn't know that. No, you did not know. So why did you judge? That's kind of the idea. Making judgments about people. 
in the book of Romans chapter 14. And boy, all of chapter 14 kind of deals with this situation. But in chapter 14 and verse 4, there's the question, who are you to judge another's servant? Stop right there. Who is this person a servant of? Well, the implication of that passage is they're a servant of God. So if you are making a judgment about them and God's the one who either blessed or otherwise inhibited them such that they are as they are, then you, in fact, are judging God because God's made this situation. Okay, so who are you to make that judgment? Well, the answer to that is, whoa, <laughs> I'm nobody. <laughs> I should not be making that judgment. And in fact, in verse 13, he says, don't. Don't do that. Don't judge one another. The reason why is because you, you, you don't know. You don't, have, you don't have the means of knowledge in order to make a judgment about people. Jesus came down pretty hard on that same idea in the Sermon on the Mount when people would call another person a fool. Now, in the Bible, a fool is a person who has no spiritual acuity. They don't really appreciate God and what He expects of them, and so they just say no. You know, they, they turn their back on God. The Bible says that, that guy is a fool. He has jeopardized his soul. His response to Almighty God is, I don't want you. Well, you have put yourself in peril. You then can't go around calling people fools simply because you don't know what their heart is. You, you don't know where they are in their relation to God. You don't know their sensibilities related to God or the path that they have taken to get where they are right now. So for you to do that calls down, again, a measure of punishment you probably were not anticipating. You were just going about calling it what you thought it was, when in reality, maybe, maybe it isn't anything like what it appears to be. To be the judge is to put yourself in God's place. But now there's an extension of this idea here in James 2 verse 4. And that is that you've become a judge with evil thoughts. It's not the evil thoughts in the sense that, oh, I don't like this guy, I'm going I'm to mess him up. <laughs> not, not that. It is the evil thought that says, you know what? I judge you unworthy, therefore I will not either associate with you or I will not care for you. Here's a passage you would not have seen coming. That's from Matthew 19, verses 21 and 22. Jesus is talking with a rich young ruler. In that story, Jesus has already kind of questioned him about what he's done, and he's listed all of the commandments that he's kept. You know, boy, his resume looks great. He's amazing. And Jesus is like, well, you know, you got it. So, uh, you know, all you got to do now is sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And then the scripture gives commentary. It tells us that he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. Let's analyze that for a minute. He's ready to serve God, whatever it takes. I have sacrificed in order to keep all of these commandments. Lord, I'm ready. 
And Jesus says, you're nearly ready. Let's test you, servant, slave. Your will, not my will. How about you give all that you have to the poor? They need it, and you clearly don't. And then, in exchange, you'll have treasure in heaven. I mean, isn't that what you really... You don't need treasure on earth anyway. And then come follow me. Because following me is is that. It's giving up all that you have. It's your will, not my will scenario. And so, he goes away sorrowful. The reason that he does is because he isn't the servant that he thinks he is. He isn't the one ready for service to the kingdom of God like he had ascertained on the basis of other laws that he had kept. Because his heart really wasn't other word. It wasn't others focused. To be others focused means, you know, I, I care for that situation. And Jesus, if that's what it takes, I'm willing to give it. No, not today he wasn't. He went on his way sorrowful and not following Jesus as a disciple. Whoops, wait a second, don't miss this. He still had his riches, but not riches in heaven. I guess we have to decide where we want those riches. And then if I'm others focused, that means, well, I I can't be discriminating against the poor. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, there is an accusation laid out against Jesus. Here's what they're saying about him. He's a glutton and a wine-bibber. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know what Jesus' response to that was? It wasn't one. It's like, okay, yes, so, sinners? So he came to save. In fact, in verse 25 that follows just a few verses later, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to Babes. Who are the babes? Well, the very ones that he was accused of associating with. Those who are most likely to accept the teaching of the kingdom of God. When it comes to our relationship in the church, a relationship of service, two things. We've got to be focusing intently directing our attention to others. We have to be looking for that common ground of association to maintain humility and unity in order to accomplish the service that God has distributed to each one of us, the particular works that we are most capable of doing. Through our series, we're going to be striving to find out what those things are with the underlying desire to maintain unity and oneness as a body so we can function at optimum efficiency. Let's have a prayer together. Then we'll dismiss our parents in about 
15 or 20 seconds later, everybody else will be dismissed. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the challenges that it sets before us. Lord, I pray that you'll help us here to be a church that serves and help us, Father, to, to focus on others. Help us to be intent and deliberate with our relationships. Help us to build a church that can win this battle in the world, to serve you to our very fullest. Thank you, Lord, for all the things that you will put before us and the capabilities that you will make available to us, the resources at our disposal, and help us, Lord, to be a glory and an honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.